Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Fascinating conversation today. Uh, Carolyn Swara is coming on to talk around something around trauma-informed leadership. And it's a, an emerging book that she's got coming out in 23. Very happy that she's come on to start to discuss this topic from her research. She's got a background involved with Brenny Brown and the Dare to Lead work in there. And from that research, Brenny Brown is well-renowned for her research. Started to, to get some ideas around what she wanted to do. And this is her passion. She's been a bit like myself, a practice-based leadership person. And now she's, she's on to this next phase. And so fascinating conversation exploring how trauma impacts people and how trauma-informed leadership can be a different style to work with so enjoy love your feedback on this conversation i'd love to hear what you think and maybe some questions or maybe some of your thoughts around it so enjoy so tell me the tattoo so where are you staying where are you staying in edinburgh we're staying in like 10 different places because it's a 16 day trip so i'm trying to remember where we're staying the dunstan right yeah it's Edinburgh, Scotland. Hospitality, wherever you go, is just amazing. You'll... Yeah, yeah. How many times have you been there before? I have right. never been there. No, I have no. not. And the bagpipes, the whole Scottish, I feel like it's in my bones. So I think it'll be a pretty special trip to go over there and connect with that. So my one thing that I always recommend people to do, but this is from my childhood, there was a film called Greyfriars Bobby, okay. which is the story of about a dog whose owner died. Oh. And he would always go to the grave of his every day. And it's quite a tearjerker, black and white. I think it's actually been made into one of these colored black and white uh, now. But you can go see the graveyard, see where it was. And it's quite a an interesting history because you had also the body snatchers up there as well. So all the graveyard and all that. So it's, it's very wow. Yeah. If you like history, well worth a, a go. So yeah. All right. Amazing. Very good. So well, for the listeners, maybe just do a bit in your background. Tell us a bit about yourself would be useful. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm based in uh, Toronto, just outside of Toronto, Ontario. Um, I had a big milestone birthday this year. So I like to say that I've got a good blend of, of being a curious young youth uh, with someone, uh, you know, a KG veteran. I started my career out in nonprofit after getting a teaching degree and then uh, found my way into big corporate jungle uh, shortly after that and spent about 17 years in big pharma and then wanted to try something new. So I uh, started my own business in 2016 and uh, here I am now getting set to launch my second book, mm. likely a second podcast and just loving what I do every day. Yeah. Tell me a bit about your story though. Uh, what goes in between that? Because pharma was my background as well. So, and it, it has an impact on, on you going through, but the corporate world has an impact. I describe myself as a corporate refugee in a lot of ways. Yeah. Of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was a wonderful experience in so many ways. I mean, you get access to, to so many opportunities to learn and grow mm -hmm. and amazing people. So, I mean, from an intellectual perspective, it was very, very stimulating it also afforded me with a lot of, you know, opportunities to do things. It pays really well and, you know, got to travel and see a lot of the world. And for, for me, where I think it really is pertinent to my story is I had incredible benefits from a health, yeah. uh, health perspective. And, you know, it just so happened, too, that the company I worked for also had a, a drug in stage, uh, stage three clinical trial that my husband at the time ended up potentially being able to take. So 
Basically, when I was 31 years old, all excited to get my corporate career off and and flying, um, my husband got diagnosed with stage four kidney cancer, and I was six months pregnant at the time. Hmm. So being in a pharma company at that time made me just so grateful because I was surrounded by you know, a huge support network from a clinical perspective to understand, you know, what, what some treatment options could be for him. And also just, you know, a very patient centered organization. So it was, it was great from that perspective and all the support I had during his illness. So he lived and he fought that thing for six years, which was pretty long compared to most people. Mm. I didn't, I never took a day off during those six years. And that's a real testament to the policies to the the people that I worked with. And, and, you know, as my mom always says, she's like, you were really good to them too. I was Mm. able to get my work done between appointments and, you know, I I took a few mat leaves in there as well, but yeah. So, I mean, the structures and systems were really set up to support people. And and when you can contribute, you know, they were really able to contribute back to me. So that really shaped a big part of my leadership journey, to be honest. Yeah. So, and and that journey afterwards and where you've gone, because the second book coming out now, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the second book's going to come out sometime in 2023. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in 2016, so Paul passed away in 2009. Mm. I ended up leaving the province and went, went across mm. the country with my kids for a little bit and then came back. And I say this because I, I came back and I thought I still wanted to do the big corporate thing, but yeah. that just didn't really feel like the next chapter for me. So I started my own business in 2016 and I I focused on culture and leadership because one of the things I saw, you know, I had 12 different positions when I was uh, in that company. And the thing that made me so versatile was my ability to bring teams together. So I was like, let's start my own business that way. So yeah, I published a book, got a master's in industrial and organizational psychology. And really for the past five years of my leadership journey in my own business, it's been about trying to show that I know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And now I'm at a point with my leadership and my own, my own business, which is, okay, I know what I'm talking about. Um, And now I have a real passion to bring a conversation into the world that I think is really, really needed based on where our world's at, based on my own lived experience. And then also based on research that I've been reading and learning about. Yeah, because you've got a very successful podcast in the background that you've got a lot of guests, including our mutual friend Glein, who's been on uh, the podcast. And yeah, so so the, there's there's a podcast in the background that was focused on one particular leadership. Yeah, yeah, that was after I wrote my book. So that mm-hmm. podcast was called PWE and Me, and so PWE represented a purposeful workplace experience. I was trying to find like my little edge in the world, and mm. I thought that that was going to be it. You know, one of the things about being an entrepreneur and a leader is, you know, learning how to adapt, try things out. And, you know, it was fun. I had fun doing that podcast. And PWE, I trademarked it, didn't really do much with it. I had a few t-shirts made and stuff. And so it was really how do we create experiences as leaders Mm -hmm. for the people that we work with? A lot less about, you know, top-down hierarchical managing, but how can we just create psychologically healthy spaces? That was essentially it. And it's evolved. My messaging's evolved. So yeah, yeah so we've, we're in the talks to, to bring out a new podcast. So um, I, I don't I don't know exactly when or, or the details around that, but it's it's mm-hmm. going to focus on this new area that I'm pretty passionate about. Yeah, and do you want to tell us a bit about that new area? Because uh, 
Firstly, I'd like to say I love your story because I resonate with that. Finding your space and experimenting and working and moving from a degree of practice leadership, as I call it, to thought leadership is important. And now it sounds like you've landed on something. Yeah, I have. I I really have. Yeah. Yeah. So where I've landed is we need to have a conversation about this big word called trauma. And so I'll I'll give you a few reasons why I think this needs to happen. Mm -hmm. First of all, when I look at my own story, I was a successful leader. You know, like I had no business background. I had 12 different roles. Like clearly I was good at at some things. Was I the best leader ever? No, I had lots to learn. But when I look back at my story, it was really driven by trying to perform in a workplace and prove my worth. You know, I told you the story about my husband at the time and, and his illness. You know, I raised, I had two children in there as well. I also started a business two years before he passed away. All well working in this pharma company. And I think I had two promotions in that six years as well. Mm-hmm. Now, some people are like, wow, Carolyn, that's amazing. You're, you're superwoman. You're great. What was really happening there is I was experiencing a ton of trauma, but the way I was dealing with it was no, no one needs to feel sorry for me. Head down. Nobody cry. This is not sad. I didn't want anybody's pity. Yeah. That's a very unhealthy response, but it looks like it's performing out there. Mm. And everybody knew the story about my husband. You know, people could see when I was pregnant. Um, Like my story was very known. The piece that people didn't know is that my dad died three weeks before my husband died. And my relationship with my dad, which again, I never talked about, was extremely tumultuous. Mm. And so, you know, from the age of three, I, I felt a need to look after my dad. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. He couldn't hold down a job. And, you know, I paid some of his bills from as young of an age as nine. And so why do I think trauma-informed leadership needs to be talked about? That was my story. That was my background. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit our world, Mm -hmm. I kept saying to myself, and, you know, we're all in lockdown. I'm like, "Eh, this it's going to be a breeze. I've, mm. I've been through pandemics before. Mm-hmm. And that's why I kept saying like, oh, this isn't my first pandemic. Like I'm good, hunker down. And in my head, I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I had to make it through six years caring for my dying husband, raising these two kids. You know, I was locked in my house in a lot of ways, metaphorically back then. Mm-hmm. The thing is, Colin, is it wasn't my first pandemic. Mm-hmm. Replace that word with this wasn't my first trauma. I think that after having sharing a collective experience that we have, mm-hmm. and we have done it, I want to make it very clear. I know we've done it from you know sitting in different boats. It was the big ocean of trauma for all of us, but definitely I was in a, a very privileged position through this one. Mm-hmm. But you know, you can't come out of these collective experiences and just pop back into the way things used to be. Yeah, and we're seeing this in the workplace, and people don't mm-hmm. know. It's like, oh, there's great resignation, and and people are stressed, and I mean, our, our systems are collapsing. Well, they, they were fragile to begin with, and so we need to have this conversation. We can't just keep pushing it under the carpet. Mm-hmm. I, I love this. I mean, there's, there's a first reaction I had, which I'm going to say because there's probably a number of people here. Before I heard your story, and I heard trauma. You know, there's that big thing about, is that too strong a word? And and also it's this next piece, which is the comparison. So somebody's version of trauma could be somebody's version of, hey, that's nothing. You know, whereas our version of trauma could be, we, we almost hide behind yeah. certain things. We go through, we go, yeah, that's not really bad, as you were saying before. So how did you choose the word trauma? Yeah. And consciously you're using it for a purpose. Yeah. 
I want to be very clear. Until two years ago, I would have told you I did not have a traumatic life. Hmm. I had a great life. My mom provided for me. I've always had a roof over my head. I've got four different degrees. Like, I come from a place of privilege. I, I'm aware of that. Hmm. Why did I start to realize? Well, I started to write this other book. And it was a memoir to my children. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 17 and 19. And it's like, man, we've been through a lot. I don't know if I could drop an S-bomb. I almost said that. So I'm trying to keep it PG here. But don't worry. As long as my mother's not listening, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of like, holy shit. Like, whew, we can kind of slow down. The world's on pause. I'm like, man, I've been through a lot here. You know, we've had blended families. I've, I, you know, got remarried. So it was an opportunity to sit and reflect. And I started reading more about it as I started to write this book and realized, shit, this, this trauma word, I have some sort of preconceptions about it. Did a bunch of reading, you know, accessible books. So not, you know, like deep into the science of trying to treat trauma, but just understanding like, what does this word actually mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I read a little bit of Gabor Mate, uh, Bessel van Balk, The Body Keeps Score. What happened to me? I think that's the one by Dr. Perry and Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. And just opened my eyes up to the fact that trauma is a universal human experience. I thought trauma was, you know, you get a big blunt force trauma to the head. Go back to the 90s. I don't know if you watched ER. It was over the pond. Yeah. You know, George Clooney, Noah Wiley. Like, it was, was, you know, (laughs) I just, you, you hear that word blunt force trauma to the head. So to me, trauma meant a physical injury that somebody willfully put upon you with like disdain or hate. So how could I have had trauma in my life when I was loved mm-hmm. and supported? And how could my children, how could I have brought two children into a traumatic experience? Like they were so loved. They are so loved. It just didn't make sense to me. And as I did more and more reading and learned that trauma is like trauma in its like just really simplest forms is like our emotional experiences that get ingested into our body that our body tries to try and cope with an overwhelming emotional experience. It's a really, really simplified version. I'm like, man, okay. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much been my life. Like when I saw that, and then you, you add that into the workplace. It's like, Mm. it's really hard to do work at the best of times, let alone in the middle or coming out of a pandemic. Mm. So that's a really simplified answer there, Colin. What is fascinating me around this is because you're talking from that side. I talk in my work around, you know, the um, anti-fragile concept of Nicholas Taleb, which is yes. the ability to ingest little bits of poison to a new definition of resilience, which is your work as well which, you know, Center for Resilience says that it is the ability to thrive in chaos. I hope I'm getting that right. But it is the same thing, which is there's good, there's bad trauma, and there's it's almost like good and bad stress in your life, and it's about how you use it. So I'd, I'm fascinated to understand how, where the, the thinking is going from the trauma in everybody's lives and how you use it into leadership, yeah. So I had the privilege in 2019 of getting accepted into Brene Brown's Dare to Lead Network. You know, I know that research really well. I've been delivering it consistently throughout the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, her Dare to Lead research is all about shame and vulnerability. So Mm -hmm. what I've experienced over the past three years doing that work is how many myths are holding people back from being vulnerable. And what I love about Brene's work and why I I really refer to it so often is because of the the research. It's research-based. 
that's that's one piece. So I, I've been talking mm. about vulnerability, being in the trenches with people as they work through it. Now, I want to add in another piece of the work. When I first started my own business, I did a lot of work in values, like values-based leadership. And let's, you know, align and co-create our organizational values. Here's mm. what I've seen. It's typically the five same words, the five, five same values. It doesn't matter what industry, what country, they're usually around accountability, some sort of teamwork, collaboration, integrity, and then in the past two to three years, obviously inclusivity. Inclusivity should have been there before. When you look at the, are those values really happening in an organization? You know, beautiful posters, you can have behaviors described. At the core, though, none of those values can be truly lived mm. until we embrace vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Agree. And let's be clear on what vulnerability means. Vulnerability, again, according to Brene's research, is an emotion we experience when there's a risk. Mm. There's a risk of uncertainty. There's there's an emotional risk there. Mm. If we want to hold people accountable in our teams and our organizations, we have to let go of control. Mm-hmm. We have to be vulnerable. We have to know that there is a bit of emotional risk there if we're truly going to hold each other accountable or if we're going to be inclusive or if we are going to collaborate. So here's the connection. Mm-hmm. We want these values. Mm-hmm. We're not getting them. How do we get them? We need to start having a deeper understanding of vulnerability and what that means. Yeah. So accountability plus empathy mm-hmm. is what is going to give you true accountability. Now, I went back, I looked in my notes when I got trained by Brene, and this is something that she said. Mm. One of the greatest casualties of trauma is the inability to be vulnerable. Hmm. And I wrote it down, I circled it and highlighted it. Mm. And I sat there and it was just, it was a real aha moment because I thought, holy shit, first of all, why did I even write that down? Because at the time, trauma was like, you know, a blunt force, stick to the head. Yeah. And that, that made me realize when I look back on my own experience, I'm like, man, I have just been living out these behaviors of trying to protect myself yep. in the workplace. And we can't talk about vulnerability if we don't understand trauma. Yep. And, and when I say trauma-informed leadership, I want to be really clear, too. It is a big word. Mm-hmm. A trauma-informed leader is not there to fix people. They're not there to be a psychotherapist. They're not there to help people unpack their trauma. Mm -hmm. They are there as leaders to create, we'll say safe spaces, to create places where your nervous system isn't activated. And those are things like basically letting go of control and accepting. Like if somebody's going to be 15 minutes late to a meeting, Hey, you know what? That's okay. No problem. Instead of like, wait, we've got so much to do. Like I need you on this call Mm. or watching the words that you say, Mm. or, you know, understanding that when somebody shows up and is like looking like an asshole at work today, Mm. maybe a quick conversation afterwards to say, Hey, is everything okay? Yeah. This isn't like you today. And you know, we've got an AP program. If you need more time, let me know. Mm. So being a trauma-informed leader is not trying to fix it, not trying to judge trauma, not trying to put labels on anything. Mm. It really is about being compassionate and recognizing as human beings, we have emotions, Mm. we have this amazing analytical head, but we can't use all this goodness in this prefrontal cortex of ours unless we recognize the vulnerability and the fact that we're humans. Mm, 
See, I love that link between the trauma and the vulnerability because I, you know, I recognize that myself and I, I know when I shut down, um, and people would say, you know, you, you can't open up Colin. And people say, well, no, Colin, you open up all the time, but there's certain things I will open up about and certain things I won't. And, and it's not, as you say, this isn't about counseling, but it's, for me, it's about this, this connection piece, true connection with the individual in front of you. And then it's about how you engage with them in a safe space is what we're saying. Yeah. And I think, you know, there were lots of people doing this or trying to do this in organizations mm. before the pandemic. What the pandemic's done is like a whole experience of like, holy shit, this stuff really matters. Mm. And as I say, it threw us into the pool of vulnerability. We were all swimming in it, yeah. but we had water wings on or we were sitting in the shallow end. And, and you know, this whole experience, pandemic, world war, racial reckoning, like it's just all piling on. Yeah. We never had control all along. No. We just thought we did. No, I agree. So it needs to be part of the conversation around vulnerability, around psychological health and safety, around mental health and well-being in the workplace. Mm. It needs to be part of that conversation, mm. I believe. So what you're not saying is this is, people go, so is this the next form of leadership? This is what we're doing. This is everything. No. You're, you're saying this is a different way of addressing that need that is now even more relevant than ever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fascinated by that. So I want to come to a couple of points that people will be asking. So firstly, you know, the, the piece about 50 minutes late. Yeah. So there, there's performance. And I've been reading this amazing book around performance. And, and the more I look about performance, the, the, the myth about performance being these robots driven people who are just able to do it. The vulnerability is a core part of performance in there. But the f 15 minutes late standards, you know, world class basics, all of those things mean that it's very difficult for leaders now to understand. So if I give that person 15 minutes, what do they do with the rest? How do I create a culture, which we started talking about before? So where's your thinking on the culture within this? So if I understand you correctly, it's sort of like, well, if I let Colin be 15 minutes late, then I'm letting everyone else be 15 minutes late. Yeah. 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 So here, here's what comes up for me with that mm. is when I hear something like that, it's still implying that I'm the boss. So yeah. that all of you under me need to follow my rules. Mm -hmm. Yep. versus our, our team call. And let's just stick with the team because that's where most people have control over, right? You don't have necessarily control over the whole organization, but with your team, you do. But if you have, as a team, you value and respect each other's individuality and also your team cohesion, mm -hmm. what is okay and what's not okay? Mm -hmm. Hey, you know what? It's okay if we are late once in a while. Yep. It's not okay when everybody starts treating it as, you know, coming in whenever you want. Mm. So it's more about what are we as a team going to hold each other accountable for? Mm. We're going to hold each other accountable to show up. And when you don't show up, just check in with us and let us know what we can do to support you so it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Or is there something that you need if you're going through a difficult time and people do not need to know all of your business. You don't need to tell everyone why, mm. but if I'm your manager and you're consistently late for meetings, we need to have a conversation yeah. like, Hey, how can I support you? Yeah. 
So it's really how can we embed this accountability for us to show up and be a certain way versus me as the boss telling you, if I let Colin do it, then I have to let, you know, Sally do it or John do it. No, I I like it. I mean, I was recording another podcast with a guy called John Alexander. He's written a book called Citizens. Mm. Great book if you get the chance. But he talks about the three stories, the story of the subject that was king or queen subject. So that's what you're talking about, authoritative, I'm in control, other pieces in there. And therefore, the subject is the one that does the bidding and gets on. Then he talked about the, the story of the consumer, which is the last 60 years, which is very individualistic. What I think you're getting to, which I I really buy into, is the concept of the team. And he talks about the citizen. So for me, a team is not a group of individuals led by a leader. They are a group of different voices that are amplified, that can share, that can have that and have the safe space. So the trauma piece is just one element of what they're sharing or choosing to share and the contract they have as a team. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. So I would say it's this. I'm in a team Mm -hmm. and Colin shows up and he's really short. He's really like Mm -hmm. brisk, abrupt. It's really easy to say, God, why is Colin being such a jerk today? He's such an ass. He said a lot about me. (laughs) (laughs) What if we shifted? Because when we say those things, it's very judgmental. It takes us emotionally and our body, it can activate, right? It it sort of activates our nervous system to Mm -hmm. be a little bit more hypervigilant. It's like, holy shit, I got to watch out. Colin's being a jerk. I got to protect myself. What if we were able to say... Oh, I wonder what happened to Colin today. Hmm. Or I wonder what's going on for him. Not that's like, oh, I need to go find out. But when we just look at it from that perspective, Hmm. the body doesn't go into like, oh, I got to watch myself from Colin. Hmm. It's more of a feeling of compassion a more of it keeps us in a connection versus a disconnection. It might sound very subtle, but it is extremely important because if you turn around and an hour later and you call me up, I don't know, we need to work on a project or you need something for me. I am going to treat you differently mm-hmm. if I'm coming from a place of compassion mm-hmm. versus what a jerk yeah. in that. And, and it comes in the forms of behaviors, mm-hmm. you know, like I'll, I'll protect myself or I might try and prove myself like, yeah, Colin, like, what do you want? So, so, you know, again, without getting into all the research, but you know, when we disconnect from other people, we put self protective behaviors in place. Mm. And when we do that, We are not able to be vulnerable. We cannot enter into a conversation that, you know, let's just free flow and see where it goes. Because I'm trying to protect myself because Colin was a jerk in that last meeting. Yeah, which is fascinating for me because what I've written down a couple of words that are coming to to me as you talk. One is the compassion side, which compassionate leadership is 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 a form. And when people say, so what what is current at the moment? Probably compassionate leadership is in there. But I'm also hearing this other piece, which has been around for a while, which is curiosity, which is to have compassion is about curiosity as well and then there's this other thing which is somebody coming in from the other side who's the one saying i can't tell you i can't share what's going on because i and we all know people in that mode including myself who will not share certain things and in that mode so it's coming from compassion but if we go back to the psychological safety amy edmondson definition and Dan Cable from London Business School. It's not about being nice. It's about have, opening up the dialogue with curiosity to allow people to see, be seen and heard. Yeah. And curiosity, compassion, those words, I've used them for years. Yeah. I considered myself curious. I consider myself compassionate. There is a big difference between doing it cognitively mm-hmm. 
and feeling it in your body. Mm. And I know for some people that might feel a little bit woo-woo, but the thing is, is trauma is about emotions, emotions, not just about, but you know, an element of trauma is what we store in our body. This has nothing to do with our brain, Mm. right? So when have we talked about leadership and how your body responds to things? And I mean, we're just talking about emotions for the past 20 years or so. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty progressive, but Mm. when you look at the science and the research of what's happening around trauma and trauma-informed practices in schools and in the education and and, in the medical sector, why wouldn't we bring it into our corporate world Mm -hmm. to just, again, understand that as human beings, Mm -hmm. we experience trauma? What does that word mean? Mm -hmm. We hold emotions in our body. When we hold emotions in our body, there's only so much we're going to be able to tolerate. And there's all sorts of different types of trauma, but, you know, the simplified way I like to look at it to have this conversation is, you know, there's situational trauma, mm-hmm. there is racialized trauma, mm-hmm. and there's collective trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the pandemic, we all experienced a collective trauma. The situational trauma that that put onto people was going to be different, and mm-hmm. obviously we all have different situational trauma. And then there's racialized trauma, and as a white woman, I'm never going to know what that trauma is like. But I can tell you now that I actually know what this word means and I'm understanding it for myself mm-hmm. and how it it has shown up in my life, I have a lot more compassion and ability to look at myself and realize I am not going to understand what it is like to be racially traumatized. But it has opened my eyes to say, Carolyn, get off your ass mm-hmm. and start having hard conversations are tricky yeah. as a white woman. And I don't think I would have been able to do that with the compassion and the curiosity and without the defense mm-hmm. if I didn't honestly start understanding what those words meant. For me, as one of the words that was coming when you first started talking about this was the concept of the ally. Yeah, because, you know, in, the, in that world, and I was listening to or talking to uh, on another podcast we recorded around this, never even thought about it, of a person of, you know, um, whose hair was always being touched because it was different. And I'd never witnessed it or seen it, but to, to almost feel that that is okay for somebody is a f- form of trauma for them. And therefore, there's a reaction which either either talk about in bed, deal with, or they store up and becomes emotion. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, I look at my own situational trauma. I mean, what I've lived with is this hypervigilance my entire life. No one could see it. Mm. But, you know, looking after my dad's bar bills at, mm. at such a young age or paying his rent when I was 12. I mean, it was only 50 bucks, but still. I mean... That was just a different type of hypervigilance. No one could see that. Mm. Now that I understand that, it's like, oh my gosh, like I I have a different level of compassion Mm -hmm. and a different level of curiosity to listen and honor other people's experiences Mm -hmm. instead of trying to compare them to what I know. Mm. I don't know what it's like to be a black woman. I can sure as hell listen to that experience and honor it and have compassion and want to be an ally. Mm -hmm. How I bring that conversation into the world is going to be very, very different now Mm -hmm. because I've been able to unpack 
and understand some things with myself. And, and to be honest, Colin, that was never, you know, we kind of got off on a bit of a tangent with that. And, and that's a very personal thing to me that opened my eyes up to mm. why didn't I understand intersectionality before I was a white woman with my eyes closed yeah. and it was embarrassing. It was, it was guilt. It was shame, all of these things. And I'm like, yeah, I need to process and understand this. So it's been sort of a secondary piece to this, mm. this world of trauma informed leadership that I'm starting to walk into, but you know, an important one nonetheless. And I'm more than happy to share my own story and my own sort of working through that, but that's not going to be a place necessarily where I'm going to, I guess, I don't know who knows. It's just been, it's been an interesting path for me. It's evolving really, because you know, that I've got a good friend who is describes herself as the menopause warrior in a lot of ways and what she has been going through. She must be so proud of herself yeah, around what she's done because She's taking that conversation into the worlds. And actually to feel the victim and trauma of that on the impact of somebody who was successful and they're not, and just having the fog and everything that goes with it. For me, that's powerful to do it. So it can be the small trauma is what we're talking about. It can be the large trauma, but it's, it's still trauma to us and it still has an impact on our emotions and how we deal with our life so yeah and, and how can we bring more compassion into this world like yeah. god knows we need it we need to stop talking about it yeah just i should say it we need to just not only talk about it but embody it feel it and have it come into our bodies yeah i would agree and it, you know we're we're very close to the end here I, I just i always remember that when i was coaching first coaching there used to be quite a bit of tears in the session, you know, and there was that moment of uh, people would say, well, you're going to be coached by Colin, it's, it's tears. And at the time, it just, it felt right for them to have emotion. But those emotions were always something inside. Now, I didn't know how to codify them. I'm not a counselor. You know, we check in to see whether they, how they were doing, they were okay, but they wanted to continue. But there is something in here that, you know, there is, it's almost a, a toxic, we go back to the ingesting little bits of poison, the anti-fragility. If there's too much in there, it's it's to the negative, yeah, a, a bit in there which is stretching and you're learning from and helping yourself to learn is a good thing. So the, the book is evolving. It's coming out in 23, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, I just want to bring this conversation. I want people just to think about this word and we cannot fix ourselves after the pandemic mm, like this. No. I love this because, you know, when I come to these podcasts, I sort of know, but I don't know what we're going to get all prepared for the spontaneity session and from our first conversation to this one. And for me, you've opened my eyes. You've given me a different language, different focus, which I love. And I'm sure you've given it that to the people who are listening to it. So, Carolyn, if people want to hear more and follow your story and follow the emergence of the, the book in 23, how would they do that? Exactly. Yeah. I love that word, emergence, because I think this conversation is going to emerge. So, carolynsuara.com uh, mm-hmm. is, uh, is where you can go. And uh, on social, at carolynsuara on Instagram and Carolyn Swara on LinkedIn. And yeah, come along. You're going to start seeing a lot more of this conversation coming out from me. So love to invite people to join in. And on the final note, just enjoy the tattoo. Uh, for those who didn't pick up, Carolyn is going to the Edinburgh tattoo with her, uh, with her mother. So yeah, wrap it warm is all I'm saying as a Scot. Yeah, do that, but enjoy it. Enjoy that bit of culture. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Colin. Lovely to talk to you. Cheers, Carolyn. Wow, that was a great conversation with Carolyn. The Q 
key things I took away from there. One was it's added a new word into leadership that I never thought we would have in there. However, having listened to the conversations, the discussion, I agree with it. Trauma-informed leadership. This fact that we have all experienced trauma and we need as leaders to be compassionate, to be curious, to be listening to this, to allow that to happen. And it's one lens to take on leadership. It's a powerful lens in terms of what I'm experiencing, my work, what I know our leaders that we work with and different organizations are experiencing. And Carolyn's onto something here that is, is going to be a powerful conversation. As you can hear from her words and her tone, she has strong views that are, are going to be heard and the conversation is starting. So I uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I look forward to hearing your feedback. I also look forward to welcoming you back in another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast soon.